LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins, and today I'm here with Chandler Benoit. Hey, hey. And also, uh, we're very excited to have uh, Tim Keller as a guest today. He's the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. It is important to say Manhattan, not you. Uh, He is the author of many books, including The Reason for God, The Prodigal God, uh, and he also just released a new series, uh, How to Find God series, that uh, we're all excited about. So uh, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit more about that series, if you would, Dr. Kelly? Sure. Um, That series is uh, basically a pastoral series. they're, They're short little books. In fact, when you see them, they're very, very small. Uh, each is about uh, 12,000 words. One's on birth, one's on marriage, one's on death, of course, which are transitions. The first one is written about, um, uh, for especially for parents who have just had a child. And the first chapter is about uh, what it means to be a parent for, for Christians. Um, and then it talks, this, the rest of it's about how do you orient your child from their first birth to the second birth, to the new birth. Mm. Uh, the second is on marriage, and the third is on death, facing the death of a loved one or facing your own death. And um, the, uh, you know, we've, we've written books on marriage, of course, my wife and I before, but basically these were supposed to be books for people who are uh, just going through some uh, transitions, maybe rethinking their faith or their relationship with God. Um, generally speaking, the books are for Christians. And yet they're also for people who maybe have not taken their Christianity very seriously. And it's very often at at times like uh, those transitions, people get more oriented toward God or they they come back to their faith or however they want to uh, express it. So, yeah, they're basically from from my pastoral experience more than anything else. What do you say to people when they're going through transitions and you're trying to get them to go deeper with God, reconnect to God or connect to God for the first time? So good. Well, um, I know that, uh, of course, there's timothykeller.com and also uh, Gospel in Life. Um, I was looking at Gospel in Life this morning and saw, you know, one of the the featured things there that's free is living by faith in troubled times. And certainly we are living in unprecedented times uh, right now. So um, it it, I, my favorite book is uh, Counterfeit Gods. Yeah, we were talking about that before. Same same here, but I feel like I can't say the same exact <laughs> one as you. So, I mean, Prodigal God was, uh, Dr. Keller, that was one of the first books that I read that I really, and then after that, I was just, just trying to to read everything um, that you wrote. You know, something I, I would love to ask is, it seems I know you've written a lot of books. How do you decide kind of what to cover? Even on these this last series that you just wrote, I know you said it was from your pastoral experience how do you kind of decide which book to write and what topic to focus on that's going to be helpful? Uh, well, there, it seems like there's two ways to come to deciding how, how to write a book. One is you're planning ahead. It's something that you've, a subject you want to get to. And the reason you want to get, I mean, in my case, I always want to get to subjects that I feel haven't been perhaps properly treated. Uh, like my book on prayer. Uh, I, as a pastor, I, I felt like I had all, tons of little books on prayer that were all pretty good, but they always... I didn't have a sort of single go-to book that just basically did theology of prayer, did the whole, how do you do it? What is it? 
So some of these books are books that I plan for years because I say, I really want to address that. But a lot of other books come up because they present themselves. So for example, my wife's sister died um, a couple years ago. I did a funeral uh, there. The uh, rest of the family asked Kathy to uh, transcribe the sermon and, and basically uh, you know, put it into a written form. So she not only did that for the family, but then she sent it to my editor at Penguin. I said, what do you think about this? And then, and then the Penguin, the editor said, oh, well, we need to expand that into a whole little book on death. But wait a minute. Let's just do something on birth, marriage, and death. And that's what had happened. And, um, and basically, my editor and my wife, uh, uh, you might say, drove that <laughs> and, and said, uh, we just think this is a great idea. And I, so I dropped everything else I was doing and we worked on that. And Kathy and I worked on that a lot together because she originally had, you know, had the, uh, had done the, the, uh, the funeral sermon. So it can, you know, there's two ways. One is serendipity. Something comes up, there's an opportunity, somebody pre presents, it's a good idea. The other is long-term. Uh, and I still have both of those kinds of books in my, as long as I can stay alive and healthy. Well, I, I do think that it's important to have uh, books around for those life transitions. It's something that, um, you know, if you have that, it's a great opportunity to have something that just is there for the long haul. When we uh, had brick and mortar stores, uh, one of the, the last but best things that we did was we actually uh, organized the store by transition. And so you had a wall uh, that went down one side of the store that was for those things. And, you know, curating some of the best content, of course, some of your stuff was there, uh, <laughs> but curating some of the best content for those times um, is really important. And uh, I think serves customers as well, because sometimes they don't even know what they want, but if, if uh, they can't identify it, but if you allow them to see that, you know, here's a transition you're going through. They're like, oh, yes, that's yeah. that's that's what I need. Um, right. One of the things I'll, I, I would say is I may have to go back and read um, Counterfeit Gods because in a time like this, uh, I, I think, you know, we're often, it's a shakedown uh, <laughs> mm. of everything that um, we really believe and we're really thinking or we're really yeah. lifting up. Yeah, I would actually say um, a couple things quickly. I mean, I'm, by the way, guys seem to love the counterfeit gods. It does not surprise me that you would be talking <laughs> about it. Because I can't tell you how many men's groups do it. In spite of the fact that a couple of the chapters are about women, they're about Rachel and Leah and people like that. But nevertheless, the guys seem to love it. But the, it's a very incomplete book in two ways. One is it really only talks about personal idols. It's really talking more about psychology and, and how we make work and children and things like that, personal idols. What we're seeing right now is there are such things as cultural idols, like an entire society can have an idol. You know, uh, uh, and it, it, Western society really does think we've nailed it. We've con we, get, we have complete control and, uh, and nothing is out of our control and technology and savoir faire and that stuff will, will, will satisfy. And we're being humbled right now. One of our cultural idols is being humbled. So the book doesn't deal with the fact that different cultures have corporate idols, you know, idols that we hold together, whether, whether it's idols of the market or the idols of uh, 
military powers, things like that. And also the other thing is the book doesn't, as you may know, since you've read it, doesn't really give them a whole lot of help on what do you do about them. I mean, how, you know, what, what's in a systematic way, once you realize what your idols are, what do we do? And it's, it was more of a, um, uh, an expose of personal idols, but it, it never really dealt in a systematic way with how you deal with your personal idols. And it also didn't deal with the, the social cultural idols. And you're right. Absolutely right. Right now, a lot of our cultural idols are being smashed. Hmm. That's very true. I will say that's a lot of humility to come on and talk about how one of your books is incomplete. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard that before, but well, not. I, it's a rationale for writing more books. <laughs> well, I, was, I was about to say, we're about to get counterfeit, counterfeit gods too. Well, I wouldn't call sequel. it that, but yes, actually I do want to write something on that, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't be called counterfeit gods. <laughs> <laughs> it would be called something else, but it would serve as a sequel. Yeah. For sure. All right. Well, let's get into our uh, our main questions, and I'm sure we'll uh, chase a few rabbits around, along the way. But um, who are you currently learning from? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I I read a lot. I, I'll tell you what. The, so, in some ways, it's it's uh, if there. I do. I have always been a reader uh, uh, from the time I was little, and so it's almost. Every, it's almost difficult to, it's very difficult to answer that question because I've always got so many books going. But in general, there are four guys, um, none of them are evangelical Christians, but uh, there are four guys that I think are, um, uh, for the last 10 years, I've come to understand that they, they, their critique of the culture, of modern culture, is the most trenchant and most seminal and they've all written multiple books and they're hard books to read. And so these four guys, I've been basically working through these books. It takes quite a bit of time and I'm, um, I've still got two or three for sure to go and it takes so long. But those four thinkers are Philip Reef, who wrote his, his main book is The Triumph of the Therapeutic. Uh, Charles Taylor, whose two big books were Sources of the Self and A Secular Age. Robert Bella, whose main book was Habits of the Heart, and then Alistair McIntyre, um, who's uh, wrote After Virtue. He also wrote a book called Who's Justice, Which Rationality? These four guys, after, for, after a lifetime of trying to find folks who put their finger on what's going on in the culture, these four guys are the ones I think that probably have gone deepest. And their books are not easy to read. And like I, I just made a list of some books, and I, two or three of them I haven't read yet. And uh, so I keep working through them. And I think that's probably the, over the last 10 years, those four guys are probably the people I've learned the most from. Hmm. Uh, none of them are Christian. I mean, I mean, excuse me, none of them are Protestants. I mean, uh, Taylor's a Catholic, kind of a liberal Catholic. Uh, Alistair McIntyre's Catholic. Uh, but uh, Bella was a kind of liberal Episcopalian. So none, none of them are evangelical Christians, but they're extraordinarily important to read, I think. And since they're hard to read, people like Jamie, Jamie Smith, James K. Smith, and others are are reading them and, and are beginning to translate them because I think most I think the church needs to hear what they have to say, but it's not the sort of thing that most people should just pick up and read. Right. So that's kind of a long answer, but uh, it's a tough question because I mean I read you know I'm learning from people all the time. And uh, if you asked me my last two or three books that I got excited about, that'd be different. But who am I learning from? Those four guys, basically. So, uh, you know, I, I recommend uh, from time to time on the podcast um, How to Read a Book by Mortimer, Mortimer Adler. Yeah. How, how, does, how does Tim Keller read a book? 
Well, um, it's, fa- it's, I'll tell you what, it's almost not, never in the middle. It's, it, there, there are some books that I think, an awful lot of books, they, are, they should be fat, read quickly, and most of them. Because most books have two or three good ideas in them at best. And what you do is you grasp them. So what I do in a lot of cases is I read, uh, you know, read the intro, uh, of course. You read the beginning and the end of each chapter, and you read the conclusion. And if when you do that, you realize, ah, I, you know, either because of the way the person writes or because of the depth of the, the, the thought, you say, I didn't get it. Then you go back and read it slowly. So um, I don't know what percentage is what. I mean, there, the books I've just mentioned, those guys, you can't, you have to read them very slowly. Right. And that means you have to read them line by line and ponder them. But I would say most of the books I read, it wouldn't be a good idea to read like that. Right. Um, so that's how I read them. I think you just gave freedom to a lot of people <laughs> to, to, to put either put down a book or just, you know, kind of skim through it and see if it'd be helpful. So that was a good, good game plan for many people. What, one thing that you were talking about, many of the books that you just referenced in the authors were kind of um, looking at culture and in your book on preaching, you, you kind of talk about how to preach um, with, with unbelievers in mind, with also with, with culture. I think even in one of your chapters, you talk about, um, preaching Christ to to the culture, how is how is reading those type of books helped you in your preaching? And what would you even share to some of the pastors listening on how to preach with that in mind? Well, those books aren't real direct. Put it this way: the books help me understand the other things I read by non Christians. So if I read the like I like to read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal because you have one is you know a little. One is left, one is right, but not super left and super right. Then you have to read The New Yorker. Then you have to read other magazines and things in which you're seeing how non-Christians, um, what their take is on on what's happening. And those folks are saying the sorts of things that my my non-Christian hearers are, are reading. But if I didn't, if I hadn't read Reef and Taylor and Bella and McIntyre, I wouldn't really understand what those other, what those non-Christians are really talking about. Um, what they do is they kind of, I hate to use the word, they kind of deconstruct uh, modern skepticism. And so uh, I need to read the things that my non-Christian friends are reading. I need to read their articles and their columns and, and their websites and that sort of thing. So that I can actually not just preach Christian Christian truth, truth in the abstract, but I can connect Christian truth to the things that they believe. And because I've read the deeper stuff on, on deconstructing their belief, I can both appreciate and yet at the same time subvert those beliefs. I can say, yeah, that's right, and it's great that we're concerned about that, but what you're trying to do here won't work, mm-hmm. and only in Christ will it work. So there's a, there's a kind of a... Affirm, subvert, redirect. You affirm what they're saying as much as you can. You know, they're, at least their motivations sometimes, their aspirations. Uh, and then you subvert and show that but what they're trying to do, what they're trying to accomplish will not work. Uh, and then redirect and say it's really only, only Christianity or only Christian faith or only Christ actually gives you what you're looking for in the wrong place. Now, I can only do that because I've read the deeper uh, critique. But I basically would not talk about Reef or Taylor or Bell or any of those people in a sermon. I would, however, re, I, I would always be, take a, a recent New York Times editorial, you know, 
Hmm. And I would say, hey, the New York Times this week, so-and-so said this and this. And probably everybody, you know, almost everybody in my community would have heard of it, especially non-Christians would have read it. And then I can take it apart. But I can take it apart in a loving way and connect it to Christian doctrine. So that's that's basically the, that's the way. I really like that last line you just said there, in a loving way. I mean, I think you do that. Oh, yeah. You handle that really well um, in, in your books on that, but also in your sermons. So a lot to learn from from you in that area. Let's move to the second question here. And what is the main point of emphasis for your leadership team or even yourself right now? Well, now you you did, um, we made this appointment, you know, this, this uh, appointment to speak, I don't know how long ago, but obviously if you had gotten me even a week ago, I'd be saying different things. For sure. I mean, uh, you need to, uh, this, this uh, recording is happening on, you know, in the middle of March, 2000, you know, 2020, we're going to remember this time. We're going to remember this month or this period. Um, and uh, everybody right now is basically trying to do two things. They're trying to say, how do we minimize the damage um, of this situation to our ministries? And then how do we, in a sense, also, how do we capitalize on the situation to minister? I mean, how, I, I, that's what you should always do. After 9-11, we were here in town. Yeah, the 2008 uh, uh, you know recession. Uh, in fact, I've been here since there was a there was a big Wall Street crash. Uh, Wall Street really the Wall Street crashes really affect New York really really badly. Uh, the, the local economy quite a bit, um, and uh, we had one back in 1987. It was a rolling one from 87 to 91, basically. And um, every time, what you had to do is you had to say. Um, how do we try to minimize the damage to our ministry? How do we capitalize on this situation to do new kinds of ministry? That's it. And right now, it's it's happened so recently, I don't have answers. For sure. I've already had people asking me the last two days, oh, Tim, give us your wisdom. What do we do now? And I, I'm just saying, look, I've, I'm old enough that I've been through times like this. Every one of them is different. This is not like the 2008 recession. This is not like 9-11 in New York City. These are, they're all somewhat unique, but they're all kind of cataclysmic. It was like a, a, a real seismic change in how everything was happening. And you, you have to, it takes wisdom. You have to talk and you have to think. And then you hear from friends that are doing something in their city. And you say, I think that would work here. So we're just at the, at the very, you know, the very, very, very front end of thinking all these things out. So... So you were, you said you were there for, for 9-11. And I know this is not, as you just said, these are very two different um, scenarios, but what did that look like for your ministry back then? Just for some people to kind of understand what that might look like stepping into the unknown uh, of a a tragedy. Can you mind, do you mind just sharing a little bit of that? Uh, Okay. Except I'm going to tell you what what I just said was almost everything that happened is the opposite of what's happening now. So for example, what happened in 9-11, everybody came together. Mm. So uh, we we had a church, uh, Redeemer, Redeemer had, we were a big church. We had like 27, 2,800 people on a Sunday. Yeah. The the Sunday after 9-11, we had 5,400 people. Wow. And it never went, it never went all the way back. It never went back. I mean, we, it went, you know, it slowly went down because I mean, non-Christians, everybody just wanted to be with everybody else. Everybody was frightened. And in New York, what would happen, this seriously, you would come up out of the subway and you would just meet people on the street and they would say, how are you doing? Did you lose anybody? Just strangers. Mm-hmm. 
And so it was exactly the opposite, mm. totally the opposite. Yeah. People who ordinarily stayed away came together. Um, but what we did, I'll just, just tell you, now this wasn't something that we were able to figure out overnight. Um, people started sending Redeemer money because they knew of Redeemer and they just said, use this to help. And people actually just sent us money. Plus we raised some ourselves. So what we did is we knew that there had been 14,000 small businesses that south of 14th street, uh, as you know, the nine 11 happened at the bottom of the tip of Manhattan. Uh, it said 14,000 small businesses went away overnight. They were just, you know, vaporized sometimes literally. Mm -hmm. And, and all kinds of people who would work down there, especially a lot of immigrant folks lost their, their livelihood. What we actually did was we just gave out word on the street and we said, if you can bring us a pay stub or show us anything that tells that proves that you worked in some business downtown, we can help. And it wasn't massive help. We gave them a Bible. We gave them a Bible in their language. Um, we, uh, we gave them uh, free Metro cards, which is a way to, to uh, travel in the subway for two or three months free, which by the way was worth something. Plus we, we did give money. We just gave money to help them pay for their rent, help them pay for food. Um, and we spent a year doing that. And we, we geared up our diaconate, which was our deacons and deaconesses. And we were in a good spot because as a church, we already had ministries like that going. A lot of churches didn't. And we didn't have to go hire people or, you know, rent office space, which was really a bad use of charitable dollars. Um, and we spent a year giving away, probably giving away $2 million. Well, and, uh, and, and we could account for all of it. You know, we could account for it. There was, there was some proof the person was in need uh, that we brought, we gave them the Bible and the gospel as, as part of the way of doing it. It was remarkable. It was amazing. It also didn't come together immediately. It took us at least a couple of weeks to figure out what to do. Well, that's a great reminder. And, yeah. yeah. And that's totally different than whatever you'd be doing now. For I'm sure. Just, for you, sure. You asked, you asked, and it's just, uh, God, God presents the opportunities. Yeah. And I think what you just said there is it didn't happen overnight. It took even a few weeks to put that plan together, but you all were looking for ways to serve your city and, and to share the gospel throughout it. So I think that's, yep. that's a takeaway from that is it's going to take time, but be looking for ways to step in. And if you're praying for it, the Lord will show them to you. So I think that's very, very helpful. I'll move yep. us now to, uh, to uh, kind of what your day-to-day uh, schedule is how do you how do you stay sharp as a leader? What's one or two things that you find uh, other than spiritual disciplines that you have to do every day to to kind of stay sharp? Well, now <clears throat> you said other than spiritual disciplines. <laughs> um, okay, I mean, I, I think I'll, <laughs> I think what I'll do is I, I will um, I'll resist you a little bit. <clears throat> excuse me, and say. Um, there are some, it's not just that prayer and Bible, excuse me. <clears throat> it's not just that prayer and Bible reading are um, absolutely critical and crucial every day. But there's a, I'll say a couple of things that, that, that I would, I, I'm not sure most people would think of when they think of spiritual disciplines. I do think that um, meditation on the scripture, which is not the same as just studying it, is very important. And there, you have to learn how to do that. I think it's critical. I do talk about it in my book on prayer. 
at some length. It's not Eastern meditation. It's not what actually probably the, most people in the in our culture think of when they hear the word meditation. It's just not. It's uh, it's very very oriented around the Word of God. But I do think that it's uh, extraordinarily important for real communion with Him. A second spiritual discipline, which again is probably not what's in your folks' mind when they hear the word, is uh, I don't have a better word for it. I'm waiting for somebody, uh, and it'll probably make you, probably make you rich if you come up with a better word. It's the word mortification, hmm. and of course, most Christian leaders know. John Owen wrote a book called Mortification of Sin, or the Puritans used that word mortification. It's a word that means to kill. And when you think of it or you read it, in fact, uh, almost everybody thinks we're talking about repentance. And I realize after many years, it is not repentance. Repentance is after you sinned, getting things right with God and other people. Mortification is, is getting to understand your sin patterns, the idols and the and the uh, sin patterns of the heart and weakening them so that they don't lead you to sin. And that is a, I tell you, I, I can't go into it here because it takes too much time. That's a very particular and peculiar kind of spiritual discipline that John Owen and a few others have talked about, but generally is just missing from modern Christian literature. Now, how do you actually get to know? It, it takes, you, you need, it helps be married because your wife will know <laughs> better than you. Uh, it helped. It takes a lot of discipline, a lot of accountability. It takes community. It takes self-examination, takes prayer. But eventually you need to be isolating those particular, uh, you might say, uh, char- your, your characteristic sinful flesh, not just your general sinful flesh. And mortification is something that is actually a very important discipline. Then reading the third thing I'd say, besides the meditation and the mortification, it would be reading across the spectrum, really, really getting outside your bubble, really reading all. I'm reading a book, for example, right now, I just to give you an example, a book called Marxism and Morality by Stephen Lukes. Now, Stephen Lukes um, is retired. He's a British man, a great scholar. He was taught at NYU for years. Um, and he is a Marxist. I mean, he's a socialist anyway. But he wrote a book called Marxism and Morality hmm, 40 years ago, I guess, or 30 years ago, that is very critical of the relativism in the heart of Karl Marx's, uh, you know, ideology. Very, very, very critical. And um, it's a brilliant book. Like, it's the sort of thing that I don't know how I, you know, I heard about it and I found it. I picked it up. I started reading it. It's utterly brilliant. It's a Marxist basically going after Marxism on its moral relativism. Mm. But uh, uh, it's the sort of thing that, you know, when I, it just opens my mind because I see he's writing to other Marxists and it's just a world I don't know anything about. And yet now I know a little bit more about it. And um, I also see that Marxism isn't the same thing as postmodernism or, it's you know, anyway. So uh, reading across the spectrum, conservative, liberal, nationalist, um, uh, you know, uh, progressive. I just think that's crucial. So there's, there's three things. And I would say I do them every day though. Mortification. I try to do that. Okay. Just, I try to do mortification on Saturday morning. I mean, it's the kind of thing that I don't think I can do every day, uh, where I basically take a look and say, here are my characteristic sins. How did I do this week? And spend some time just humbling myself before God and 
asking for more deliverance and, 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 and thinking about Jesus in the ways that weaken those particular sin patterns. So I wouldn't say I'd do that every single day. But anyway, those are the things I do regularly and that I think benefit uh, my life and leadership enormously. Hmm. Well, I was feeling pretty good about how many books I read you know, maybe a week or a year, but after, <laughs> after this interview, I'm going to have to up my game a little bit. <laughs> well, you know what you can, you, listen, it, it feels honestly, uh, the reality is that we should be skimming a lot of books because you want to know what's in them hmm. enough to even have that idea. But then, but then you see when you're writing something or talking to somebody, you say, Oh, wait a minute, that book is about that. Then you go back sometimes and can really read it. But it really isn't, I mean, you're just not going to get to everything if you read every book. You just need to skim a lot of books. Right. And then, of course, you can tell people, oh, yeah, I read that. You're not going to use the word skim. You're going to say, oh, yeah, I read 40 <laughs> books this year. You yeah, know? We do. But uh, actually, you skim, you skim 30 and you read 10. We and do. I, uh, that's fair. That's fair. Um, book breakdowns occasionally on this podcast. And it's mostly, I, re I read a lot of business books, marketing books um, mm -hmm. and the like. And... So it's, okay, let me tell you how the four disciplines of execution um, should be, you know, used by your church. It, it's it's taking a business book and then, like, you know, breaking it down for yeah. Uh, yeah. stuff that they wouldn't probably, probably read. But in that, we say, um, is this a sit down, <laughs> a scam, or summary? Uh, because, you know, just like you said, not every book is is worth uh, reading and it's your time is really, really valuable. So yes, uh, absolutely. I, I, I echo that. Um, I knew you were going to, <laughs> you're sitting there like, yes, <laughs> yes, finally. <laughs> That's so good. Well, Tim, I know you uh, reference mortification uh, <laughs> is helpful uh, with, with your wife, Kathy, for her to be able to kind of look at your life. What does leadership in your home look like? Well, my wife has written a book called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles, a short book, in which she certainly um, outs herself and says, I believe my husband is my the head of my home. <laughs> so, you know, and of course she, and, and she loves to do battle with people who think that's, um, you know, oppressive or regressive. Uh, and yet, I mean, the fact is that, uh, and she, she also wrote the chapter in our book, Meaning of Marriage. She wrote fully one chapter, the one on submission, the one on what does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband. She wrote that, of course. And in there, I'm pretty sure, though, I, uh, what she tries to say is that submission starts in our home with the fact that neither of us particularly like the role. In other words, I don't particularly like the idea of being a leader. I would just, I would have been emotionally, I mean, I've always been uh, convictionally, I've always believed the Bible taught that, that the husband is the leader, the loving leader of his wife. So I've always been, I've always believed that. Emotionally though, I'd be very happy in an egalitarian marriage because I don't particularly like, I don't like leadership. I don't like it. I, I don't like, I don't like being the person where the buck stops. I don't like it. And so I don't particularly like it. And of course, Kathy doesn't particularly, she's actually a pretty strong and opinionated person. And she often chafes under not being the leader. So she would say, we both, we both Tim and Kathy have to submit to our roles, which we don't want. We, we, in other words, we're personally not particularly, uh, they're, they're not roles that we have a natural affinity for. And she says, once you do that, and she says, once I see that my husband is humbling himself before his role, 
I can, it's easier for me to take it when he does exercise his authority. Now, we would actually say that the exercise of my authority is generally what I would call tie-breaking authority. That is, um, I, um, you know, we talk and we try, I try very hard to, you know, come to consensus on things. But what she'll say is, uh, and this is where she laughs a little bit when she says it, she says, we can't come to consensus. She says, okay, be a man. You take, you, you make the decision. <laughs> and you see, and she knows, it, it, she says, far from being oppressive, she loves it because she says, we can't agree. So you're the one that has to make the decision. And then of course, you'll be the one who uh, takes the blame if it's a bad decision. <laughs> so, so she says, you know, be a man, you know, do it. And, um, and actually, I'm not sure how even the egalitarian families do it. I mean, when, when you can't come to consensus, then somebody's got to make the call. Mm. And, uh, and my doing that, I don't like doing it, but I do it. And, uh, and that, and that actually has been my way of actually serving my wife because she says we, we've structured leadership in such a way that, that, uh, where we disagree, um, she knows that I'm my, it was as long as I'm making decisions in which I take the responsibility for the decision. And secondly, I'm always trying to do the thing that most serves us as a couple, not just my personal selfish interest. Then she says it's not oppression. It's not oppression at all. So anyway, we've, we've agreed on that. We've, we've written about it. So if you want to know how leadership works in our home, unlike most of your interview podcasts, you can read about it several places. <laughs> you, can read, you can get out the Meaning of Marriage book and read Kathy's chapter on submission, or you can read her book, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. Mm. Well, meaning of marriage is, is phenomenal. It's uh, whenever I do uh, premarital counseling or I'm doing somebody's wedding, I'll, that's a book I always recommend. So thank you for, and Kathy for writing that. It is a very helpful resource. And if you haven't checked it out, if you're listening, you definitely want to do so. On this podcast, we equip our listeners with the absolute best resources to help their churches thrive. So if you're looking at launching a thriving church in a rented venue or perhaps a new one that you own, I would encourage you to check out the team at Portable Church. Portable Church Industries equips churches meeting in alternative venues with total solutions so that you can launch strong, be reproductive, and thrive in your community. For over 25 years, they've partnered with church planters and multi-site leaders, mastering creative, intelligent, and effective portable church solutions so that you and your team can stay focused on the thing that really matters, and that's building disciples. If you want to see what this looks like, visit portablechurch.com slash lifeway. All right, so uh, I'm going to... Get to our last question. It may or may not be our last question. Um, <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. Um, and that is, uh, what would you tell your 20-year-old self about preparing to lead or, or advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Well, this might not be the last question because I'm not going to take much time on the answer. <laughs> <laughs> because I've already given it to you. I would say my 20-year-old self, you have no idea how important prayer and mortification is. You just have no idea. My 20-year-old self had not read or had, hadn't heard of mortification. So my 20-year-old self was a brand-new Christian, by the way, brand-new. Hmm. Um, I would say I probably crossed the line into faith um, literally probably in January of 1970. I was born in 1950, so I would have been probably 19. So my 20-year-old self was a brand-new Christian. 
but I, you know, of course I was told to pray and all that, but I would say, listen, my 30 year old self didn't understand how important prayer was. My 40 year old self did not understand how important prayer was in spite of the fact that I was a preacher and I was telling people about it. I, I can just tell you, I really did not believe it was a life or death thing. I would have said it. I probably would have preached it's life or death, you know, because you have to, you're supposed to. But I didn't really believe it in my heart of hearts. It wasn't really until I was about 50 that I realized if I don't learn, if I don't deepen my prayer life, I am not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. Nothing's, I'm not going to make it. I'm just not. So that's what I would have told my 20 year old self. But guess what? I would have saved my breath. You know why? Because I know my 20 year old self is going to have to learn it the way we learned it. I just, I don't think you, you'll sit there, listen to some 50 year old phantasm from the future coming back and telling you you really need to pray and it wouldn't have made any difference. <laughs> well, I want to ask you a question kind of as we're talking about looking back on on your 20-year-old self. I remember reading um, an article and I think in that you shared, somebody was asking you, should pastors write books? And they asked kind of when should pastors write books? And you kind of mentioned, um, I think even, I'm, I'm going to read this real quick. It says, writing a book in your 50s will go twice as fast and be twice as good as if you try the same book in your thirties. It's just good stewardship to wait. Can you kind of speak into that? Cause I'm, we're talking to your 20 year old self and I'm sure there's some 20 year olds and 30 year olds who are like, I just want to write a book. <laughs> Tim Keller is my, I love reading his stuff. I just want to write like he writes, but you're also offering some advice and saying waiting is good stewardship. Can you speak into kind of your heart behind that a little bit? Sure. I'd love to, I'd love to do that because <laughs> I, um, uh, as you, if you could probably add it up by looking at my bio and all that, my, well, I wrote a little, I, when I was a Westminster seminary professor and back in the eighties, I wrote a short book, but apart from that, I, my first book reason for God was 2008, which means I was 58 or I was writing when I was 57. In other words, I started writing all this, all these books that you've seen when I was like 50 in my late fifties. And when I, and I think that was about right for two reasons. One is I realized that I, you know, I'm still evolving in my thinking to some degree, but most of the huge revolutions in your thinking are over by the time you get to be your <laughs> mid words, You still change, but it's not as fast. You just don't because you've done a lot more thinking and you've experienced a lot. And you just have such huge changes in the way in which you think about things from your 20s to your 30s and from your 30s, your 40s, 40s, 50s. That's what I mean by stewardship is one of the problems of writing a book when you're younger is you're going to you're going to change. You're going to change a lot. And you may actually find the book that you wrote almost embarrassing. Mm. Secondly, if you're a pastor, it just takes a lot of time to write books. Um, and you don't have a lot of material. <laughs> you know, when I wrote my book on Jonah two years ago, The Prodigal Prophet, I preached to the book of Jonah three times uh, because I'd been in ministry for 45 years and I preached through the book of Jonah three times. I had lots of material. Um, what I see is guys in their early thirties preach to the book of Jonah once and they say, I'm going to turn it into a book. Well, you know, I preached through the book of Jonah once when I was in a blue collar town in Hopewell, Virginia, where hardly anybody went, you know, 5% of the population had gone to college. And then I wrote, uh, uh, I did, I preached on Jonah again, uh, like I think, you know, in the middle part of my life. And then I preached on Jonah the last time, right after 9-11. And when I look at those, the way in which I read the text with in such radically different settings, I, I you know, I, nothing I said contradicted 
whatever else I said. But it was I was just seeing things in the text because I was coming to the text. New, I was seeing new things in the text because I was coming to the text with such different questions in my mind. And it just, you're just, it's so much thicker and when you're older because you've been through the material so many times and you've thought about it and you've been in so many different settings. So it's, it's not good stewardship, A, because you're going to change your mind later to write a book when you're young. B, because you're going to have a lot more material and it's going to go faster. And C, frankly, you shouldn't be taking that time away from your ministry. Hmm. Um, I got to say that when I got to the end, you know, when I got into, uh, you know, near 60 years old, I was starting to write books. My folks felt like, look, you'd already put in 25 years building this church. We think a lot of your stuff should be out there. But it definitely diminishes your ability to go out. It, it definitely takes away from your ministry. It just has to. It does. It's 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 a lot of energy, and um, that's another reason why I really don't like seeing guys in their 30s writing books. And here's the real, real problem. And I, I hope I'm not saying something too evil about the publishing industry, the Christian publishing. If you if you if you start a church and your church gets big the publishing waters just part for you, you know, like, and you walk across on dry land, everybody wants you to write a book. Why? Well, because you've got an automatic audience for that, you know, first uh, set of, uh, you know, when it first comes out, a whole bunch of people are going to buy it. And of course you probably, if your church got bigger, you're probably a pretty good communicator. By the way, though, that does not mean you're a good writer at all. And it's going to take, as you know, the difference between oral and written communication is huge. And so many times the better oral communicators are not very good writers and they have to work so hard at it and they got to get so much help at it. And meanwhile, you should be building your church. Sorry, I'm, you, you actually got me going here, didn't you? Oh, that's good. <laughs> you really got me going. So I'm just saying, uh, and besides that, I hate to say it, there's an awful lot of books that are relatively redundant. Hmm. You know, just because you wrote a, you did a series on Exodus doesn't necessarily mean I now need to come out with a, a book on Exodus when there's just a ton of good commentaries and other expositional commentaries on. So anyway, for all those reasons, you know, wait, just all, that's all. Yeah. Well, thank you for answering that. So what would you tell your 30 year old self? Don't write a book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my 30 year old self did, but that I wasn't a pastor. I was, I, for five years I taught at Westminster theological seminary. Yeah. And when you're a professor, you are supposed to write books. (laughs) That is is your job. Which is good. The question I asked was advice to pastors. So I think that is good clarity there. Well, I do want to ask one more question. It's a short question. (laughs) We cannot have you on the podcast and not ask you what your favorite C.S. Lewis book is. And especially in a time where people are looking for books to read, potentially, uh, we have some extra time on our hands during this season. What is your favorite C.S. Lewis book and what would you recommend somebody to start reading his work? Well, you know, that's, boy, that's, um, it's hard. (laughs) Uh, It is hard. Probably my favorite C.S. Lewis book, just personally, is probably The Great Divorce. Mm. Uh, but that's not the same. You, you, you know, you, you, uh, you cheated. You gave me two different questions. Because <laughs> ask me my, per- my favorite and where would you start are not, I wouldn't say they're the same. Uh. I wouldn't give the same answer. <laughs> I, I actually do think that the, you might say the trilogy, which it's not a trilogy, but it, to me it is, is uh, Mere Christianity, screw tape letters and the great divorce. Now, if you read those three together, they're, they're not that long. Um, even mere Christianity though, it's, I find some people struggle with it. It was radio talks. I mean, it's still, yeah. you know, he's, a, you know, he's a British professor. So 
uh, nevertheless, it was the, the, it was oral communication, which he then edited for publication. But you see, if you what's fun about it is if you read Mary Christianity, maybe even first, you get its theology, which is you get the theology. When you read Screwtape Letters and uh, Great Divorce, you see it embodied. You see it, you know, how it actually works out in um, how it works out in in a in the stories. And I think it put, you put that together, it, those three together, and they're really enjoyable, especially Screwtape Letters. Screwtape Letters is a lot of fun. Oh, that's one of my favorites. Great Divorce seems a little weird at first because you have to say, wait a minute, what what is this exactly? <laughs> what is going on? You know, and in the end, you see it's a dream. In fact, I, don't, I have no problem with spoilers just to say it's a dream. Somebody's had it. <laughs> um, the dream that they're on, that he was in hell and he's on a bus from people from hell going up to the outskirts of heaven where the people from heaven come down to the people from hell and they try to get them to, you know, accept Christ and change their lives and come into heaven. And it's a dream. And yet by it, Lewis is basically teaching his really great Christian theology. So I would say those three, but I would hate to limit it, you know, that because almost everything he did was lovely to read. Yep. Thanks for answering that. <laughs> and thanks so much for uh, just spending some time with us today and uh, just, I don't know, continuing to invest in leaders and in the kingdom. That's what I want to do now, at least as long as I have strength and breath. Well, thanks for joining us and thank you for listening and we'll see you next week.